Good morning, everyone. Great to see you all here today. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that as we come to the end of the book of Hebrews, once again as we look at it, we will remember who you are and what you've done for us. And even more, as we come to these last sections with their powerful commands and instructions about how to live, uh, that truly we will take to heart and continue to persevere in our Christian walk. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, do you know uh, what is the most popular song played at funerals? Okay, do you know what the most popular song... Someone said something? Oh. Okay, do you know what the most popular song played at funerals? Uh, apparently, I was reading a newspaper article that one of the most popular songs played at funerals is the song by Frank Sinatra. Anybody know who Frank Sinatra is? Uh, okay. Anyway, he sang this song called, I Did It My Way. Okay, so it's a song that really celebrates about doing my thing, about individualism, don't worry about what other people are doing. I did it my way. And I think that uh, that probably makes it a very popular song that resonates with many people. I mean, I guess maybe in the 50s and 60s, even today with us. Because I was listening on the radio the other day, this song by uh, Kelly Clarkson, I don't know if any of you know that, called Catch My Breath. And if you actually listen to the lyrics, it, it, it's almost the same as the, 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 the themes which are found in Frank Sinatra, uh, I did it my way, because she says, catch my breath, no one can hold me back. I ain't got time for that. Now that you know this is my life, I won't be told what's supposed to be right. So I guess if you listen to the songs of the 50s and 60s, and you listen to the songs today, those two themes seem to resonate very powerfully with people in every age. Which is, live for yourself, do things your way, live your own life. Now unfortunately, as Christians, this is not a motto or a theme that we can adopt or embrace because we do not live our lives our own way, we do not live for ourselves and neither do we live and, not dis- and disregard everything else and everybody else. Now over the last few weeks, we've been looking at uh, the last few parts of the book of Hebrews and last week, we saw that God had said very clearly that the, the Christian life was like a very long, hard race. A race full of struggles, a a race full of persecutions and sufferings and difficulty. And God said that if you are to finish running this race, because that's what really counts, not how fast you run, but finishing the race well, there were a few things that we had to motivate us to keep going. The first thing was that we had a great cloud of witnesses in heaven watching over us, people who had finished the race, and they were there to encourage us and inspire us to go to the very end, so that At the very end, they'll be waiting with us and together we will be taken up to heaven. We were to throw off every hindrance and every sin that entangled us. And thirdly, we were to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And lastly, we were to accept as God's training and discipline the hardship that we encountered in our Christian race. Now today we are looking at the very last motivation, which is found in the end of chapter Uh, the last section last week, which is chapter 12, verse 12 to 13. So you need to open your Bibles and look at it because we didn't read it a moment ago. But if you look at chapter 12, verse 12 to 13, that's where we're going to be starting today's sermon. Not verse 14. Chapter 12, verse 12 says, Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame 
may not be disabled, but rather healed. Now, as we come to the very last part of last week's section, there is one motivation which is sort of hidden there, the very last verse. And it says, Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Now, this uh, idea, as we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, there are lots of Old Testament ideas, lots of Old Testament themes which are infused within the book of Hebrews. When it says here, make level paths for your feet. Uh, literally, it's, it's coming from the idea of Proverbs. Okay, So if you look at Proverbs, Proverbs has this phrase which is used in different parts where you're supposed to make level paths for your feet. Uh, to take only ways that are firm, do not swerve to the right or to the left, keep your foot from evil. So to make level paths for your feet doesn't mean that you know you're running and then you have a steamroller in front of you, right? but it's to run in such a way where you avoid evil or wickedness or things which will lead you astray. Okay, things that will lead you astray. So as we run, we are to run with perseverance, run in a way which avoids evil and wickedness, but notice the motivation. You are to run in this way to make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. See, the motivation to keep running on level paths, on paths which avoid evil and wickedness and sin is so that the lame may not be disabled. Now, who are these lame people? Are these the people found in the orthopedic department of the hospital? No, right? It's a, it's a picture for the Christian community. It's those people in the Christian community who are weak, who are struggling, who are having difficulty. And what it means here by being disabled is literally, in the, in the original language, it means that they will not experience a ligament tear or a really bad break or, or bad sprain so that they cannot run anymore. See, I guess in that way we see how we must keep running the race, the Christian race, faithfully because if we run poorly or badly, we actually affect other people. And I think that we've all experienced that before. We've seen a, a Christian brother or sister who runs poorly and badly and it can stumble us. It can be fatally stumbling. Uh, it can lead to us spraining ourselves or in a figurative sense having a bad ligament tear so that some Christians actually drop out of the race. But if we run well, instead of being disabled, these weak are actually healed. They're actually healed. Now I always remember uh, one of the most inspirational people uh, in my Christian experience was this guy called uh, Dudley Ford. He's an old man, he was a pastor in the 70s, so it gives you an idea of how old he is. But I always remember that when I met him, and even, I don't know whether he's still alive today, but in occasions which I have met him, he was always marked with such joy and positive goodwill and, and a, a real strong, vibrant Christian faith. That whenever I met him, I felt so encouraged after I met him. And his life was always marked with consistency, with a real genuine and sincere desire to always please God. Now, if you actually know his life, and I found out more about it uh, much later on, you actually realize that it's so unusual because his Christian life as a Christian minister was marked with such difficulty and disappointment, yet he was so consistent in his Christian walk. And it was such encouragement to me, and I think that for many people too, 
you know, if you, if you know people like that who are so consistent and faithful, they will heal you, they will help you in your own Christian walk. I remember Don Carson once said in a, in a lecture, I mentioned Don Carson before, he was here a few weeks ago for Project Timothy, and many years ago he was in a theological college lecture, and he said that for him, there was something worse than death. And I started thinking to myself, what can be worse than death, right, to a certain degree? And he said, well, to him, something worse than death would be to disgrace God and to stumble other Christians. That was his great fear, because now that he'd become very famous as a Christian writer, as a Christian lecturer, as a Christian preacher, his great fear was that he would do something to disgrace God and as a result, stumble others. You know, to, as it says here, make the lame disabled. So, for him, he said that he would rather die than to stumble other people. So, I think that's the challenge for us, isn't it? As we, even as we come to this very first verse of the section we're looking at today, as we run our Christian race, as we walk faithfully in our Christian walk, are we doing it in such a way as we are disabling other people, weak Christians, making them lame, giving them a sprain, and helping them in a bad way to fall out? Or are we healing people in our Christian run? Are we running in such a way that our paths are straight and that when people view us and see us, they're actually encouraged in their Christian walk? Well, in verse 14 onwards, it actually tells us uh, and develops this idea of how we are to run in such a way as to heal rather than to make disabled the lame. So we're going to look here in verse 14 to 17. And if you actually look at verse 14 and 17, you actually notice that all the verbs here are in plural form. They are not as individuals. They're not speaking to us as individuals, but they're speaking to us as a church body, as a group, as a community. So it says in verse 14, as a community, it says, it says like when it says make every effort, it's like we should make every effort, right? So make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. So here there seems to be a few disparate ideas, but they're also connected with the idea that together we are to help one another. And the first way is, we are to live in peace with everyone. Now, when it says there, make every effort, it is not a suggestion, it is not a recommendation, it is not an idea. It is a command of God that we are to make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Now, that means that we must put in intense effort to live in peace with people. Okay, I mean, obviously... It's not saying that uh, uh, we should be a doormat or something, but as, as much as possible, what it's saying is within the Christian community, we are to make every effort to live in peace with one another. Now, I think that uh, within this idea of living with peace with one another, it sort of captured the idea that we looked at, I guess, in the previous weeks, where outside of the church, it was described as the sphere of sin, where there was persecution, there was hardship, there was suffering. And I think that within the sphere of our community, 
Christians are to find a safe place, uh, fellowship, peace with one another. Because if outside the church you are facing persecution, hardship, suffering, and inside the church you are first facing persecution, suffering, and hardship, well, your Christian race will not last very long, isn't it? Because there is no safe harbour where you can find encouragement, where you can find fellowship, and where you can find uh, the ability, the energy to keep going on. But unfortunately, I'm not sure about you, but even in my own short Christian life, I've seen that as Christians, people don't make every effort to keep peace with one another. I've seen people break peace with one another over the most trivial issues. I've seen Christians break peace with one another over car parking lots. Yeah, I've seen people break peace with one another over, you know, just differences in, in reading a, a minor section or a minor point in the Bible. I've seen people disagree and break peace over how to use a church building fund. Now these things should not be, isn't it? Because as God's people, these are not things that we are to break peace over. It's supposed to say here in verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with one another. It goes on to say, and make every effort to be holy. To be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, someone asked a good question in one of the studies before about what it means to be holy. What does holy mean? To be holy is the word literally to be consecrated, but then you ask me what does the word consecrated, right? Now, the word consecrated literally means is like uh, you are dedicated to God in service. And so because God is holy, we are to be holy in every way, in everything we do. Again, like I said before, when we looked at Hebrews, there's a lot of Old Testament ideas involved. So actually, the idea of consecration, the idea of holiness, is part of the idea of the temple worship. Uh, there were instruments which were consecrated, which were made holy for the service of God. So if you go home, uh, there are many things, many instruments that you use at home which have a common purpose. Uh, your toilet brush, not your toothbrush, but your toilet brush, right, your kitchen cloth, your mop, all these things are common instruments used for common everyday use. Uh, they're not dedicated to God, they're not consecrated for God's service. But we as Christians have been made holy by God so that we may serve Him. We are, we are, we are made holy so that we can, we can serve a holy God. We are consecrated to serve a holy God. So if you look up here, in 2 Timothy 2, it sort of captures this idea, and I'll show it again in, chapter, in the book of Hebrews. It says, in a large house there are articles not only of gold, and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes, and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. See, so the idea here is that, uh, in a sense, we have been made holy because Jesus' blood has made us holy. He's washed us clean of all sin. Because we are holy, we are to keep being holy as our service to God in everything that we do. In uh, chapter 10, verse 10 of Hebrews, next slide, it tells us, if you remember a few weeks ago, that by God's will we have been made holy to the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
But that doesn't end there, isn't it? Because even though we've been made holy by the blood of Jesus, we are to keep doing holy things. We are to give ourselves wholly to holiness. Right? In fact, it says there, very clearly, in chapter 12, verse 14, that if you seek to disqualify yourself by doing unholy things and wicked things and sinful things, you cannot see God. Because you have chosen by your own volition to actually indulge in things which have no place among God's people. So once again, it says here, as a community, as individuals, as part of this community, be holy, make every effort to be holy. Right? Be what you already are, be the holiness that Jesus has made you. Now verse 15 uh, is a difficult verse and requires attention. It says, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now the two things are related here. The idea of falling short of God's grace and the idea of the bitter root. They're not two ideas, but they're actually one idea and one sort of related, connected idea. Now we are quite clear in terms of falling short of the grace of God. See, God has given us eternal life by Jesus out of His mercy and grace, but we can choose to reject it and fall short of that grace. But by doing so, we also become like a bitter root. Now, the bitter root is not like, you know, uh, a bitter person, you know, someone who's a very bitter, angry, uh, grumbling sort of person. The idea of bitter root is actually, again, linked back to the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy. So, if you look here in the book of Deuteronomy, um, next slide, the, the Israelites were preparing to go into the promised land. And as they going into the promised land, God had made uh, several warnings very clear to the Israelites. So he said to them, Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such a bitter poison. When such a person hears the words of this oath, he invokes a blessing on himself and therefore thinks, I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way. This will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. So here the, uh, the people of God, the Jews, were going to the promised land and there was a temptation that there would be people who would turn to worship other gods, the gods of the nations in which they were entering. But the problem is God says that these people are like a bitter poison, a bitter root. Literally, the word is the word wormwood. Right? Wormwood is like this herb that is found in the Middle East where you eat it and it's really bitter but it's a poison. And it says that this sort of person who is idolatrous, who turns away from Yahweh and adopts the gods of the nations, these people can become like a poison which grows and grows and as a result spreads to the rest of the community and brings judgment upon all the people of Israel. Well, that's the idea that is being found here in Hebrews chapter 15, uh, 12, verse 15. That there may be Christians who fall short of the grace of God, but not only do they fall short of the grace of God, because of their influence, they actually contaminate 
the community and as it says there, cause trouble and defile many, make many unclean before God. I mean, I've seen this before. Uh, I've seen in a church uh, that I know of, a person who was a very high-powered person, very influential person, and for some reason, this person started having very strange ideas about the Christian faith. Uh, that Jesus was not the only way to be saved, and that there were you know, other ways to be saved, and he started integrating all these weird ideas into his Christian life. And the problem was that uh, even though people tried to call him back to the right way of living, he didn't respond. And because he was so persuasive, so, I guess, influential in the church, soon his ideas spread to other people, and the church was sort of really... Uh, affected by his thinking that somehow all these people within the church who in the past were very stable Christians running the faithful Christian race they were all destabilized see this is the situation that this verse is talking about but it says here that in verse 15 see to it that all of us right all of us have a responsibility that when we see other others our friends among our congregation our brothers and sisters fall or struggle in their Christian life, who are turning away from Christ, that we are to call them back, right? We are to call them back and to help them. But at the same time, it doesn't end there, right? Because our responsibility is not just to call back those who are falling away, but also to make sure that if they do fall away, that their ideas or their lifestyle must be actually not a factor in causing trouble for the rest of the community, and defiling other people. So unfortunately, sometimes that might mean that we actually say that, look, someone is falling away, and that person is actually not saved anymore. And that the ideas that this person has, or the lifestyle that this person has, is actually wrong, and call them out for it, because it affects other people. You see, it was the very same problem in the church in Corinth. Do you remember, as we looked at the book of Corinthians last year, where... There was a man who was sleeping with his uh, father's mother, or so he was sleeping with his stepmother, but the church was not calling him out on it. And as a result, because of this man's lifestyle, it was affecting the faith of many people in the church. I've seen the same thing happen in Singapore, where there are people in church, in other churches, who, who think wrongly, live wrongly, but the church does not call them out. And as a result, other people think, well, it's okay if I do it, and I can still be saved. Just like in the example in Deuteronomy. But God says, make sure that never happens. Make sure that you do not let this cause trouble in the farming. In verse 16 to 17, it says that, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Now, in verse um, 16, it, it talks for the first time about sexual morality, uh, which is very surprising because as we've been going through the whole book of Hebrews, it doesn't seem to be that problem in the, in the church. Um, actually, it refers forward to chapter 13, verse 4, uh, where it talks about how um, people are to keep the marriage bed pure. Okay, so uh, since Y is going to be preaching on that next week, I won't steal his thunder and I'll skip it. I'll, I'll let him deal with that next week. But what I want to focus on is what it says there after that, right? It says, see to it that no one is godless like Esau, 
for, for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Now who is this character, Esau? Because obviously, when it says that we are not to be godless, uh, godlessness can be expressed in so many ways, right? But he says, don't be godless like Esau. So who was Esau? Uh, Esau was the oldest son of Isaac. Okay, Isaac had two sons, Esau, Jacob. And as the oldest son uh, in the ancient Near East, he had a better inheritance rights. Okay, he would receive double what the other sons would receive. So, in the ancient world, it was really great to be the oldest son. Okay? Because the second one really came second. Okay, so the first one would get double, but, but even more importantly for Esau, he would not just receive double portion of the inheritance of Isaac, but he would inherit the promises of God that God gave to Abraham. And that Abraham then passed on to Isaac. So, not only would uh, Esau receive double portion of inheritance, he would receive God's promises to Abraham, which was passed on to Isaac and passed on to him. So, he had, he had everything. Okay? He, 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 he had the, truly everything, the lion's share of the inheritance. But what did Esau do? Okay, what was the mistake, the godlessness of Esau? Well, in Genesis chapter 5, it tells us what happened to Esau. So the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. Okay, so the father loved the eldest son Esau, but Rebekah, the mother, Love Jacob. So once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, his younger brother, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And that's why he was called Edom. Okay, red, Edom means red. Jacob replied, First sell me your birthright. Sell me your inheritance rights. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is, my, is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. So what was the godlessness of Esau? Well, he, dis- he sold the promises of God, part of his birthright, for a single meal of red lentil stew. He, he chose the short-term pleasure of filling his belly over the infinitely eternal, valuable inheritance that he would have. And that's what Hebrew makes a point of saying, isn't it, in verse 16, for a single meal, he sold his inheritance. Now the Bible says here, that uh, in uh, Genesis, is that he despised his birthright. He didn't, when he despised his birthright, that means he didn't give it the, the right value, or he didn't treat it with the value that 
it was worth. So let me give you an illustration. Let's say, uh, for illustration's sake, uh, I somehow came to possession of a Patek Philip watch. Right? Just as an illustration. And I gave you that Patek Philip watch as a gift. Now, imagine if you then left that Patek Philip watch in the sun, outside in the rain, uh, you know, you left it on the floor so that people could step on it. Then, in a sense, you do not value that gift that I gave you, right? Because you're not treating it with the value that it holds. You're despising it. You're despising what it really represents. Well, that's what it says here in Deuteronomy, isn't it? Esau despised his birthright. He didn't value it. He valued it less than a single bowl of red lentil stew. The passage then says, look, don't be like Esau. Learn from his example. Do not be thoughtless like him and throw away what is eternally valuable for what is temporarily satisfying. And that's what the whole point of the rest of this chapter is all about, is to tell us just how valuable our inheritance is. So in verse 18 to 21, what is our inheritance like? Well, in verse 18 to 21, it says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm. To a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. Because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. See, the mountain that the Hebrew Christians came to, that we come to, is not like the old time of Mount Sinai when God spoke to his people. Because when God spoke to his people at Mount Sinai and gave the tablets of the Ten Commandments, it was very clear that God's people could not approach God, could not come to God. There was thunder, there was lightning, there was sound, there was smoke, there was everything in your, from what you see to what you hear to what you feel in the shaking on the ground tells you no entry, no entry to God. But that is not the inheritance that we have as Christians and that is not the inheritance that the Hebrew Christians had before God. Because that is said, it says that that was what happened in the past, right? That's not the mountain that they've come to. But in verse 22, what is the mountain that we together with the Hebrew Christians have come to? But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, this is the inheritance we've come to. See, this inheritance is the heavenly Jerusalem, the Mount Zion, and we have a present possession of it. You notice there, it says that we have come to it. We've come to the same judge, but this judge no longer judges us, because in verse 23 and 24, we have been made perfect, because Jesus is our mediator of a new covenant and because his blood has washed us clean. See, that's why we can come with joy to God and not fear and terror. 
Because now we are made perfect, we are made righteous before God. Therefore, this is exactly our inheritance. We have a citizenship in heaven. That's what it says there, isn't it? It says there very clearly that we have come. We are the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. We have a passport to the heavenly city. Okay, we belong to the heavenly Jerusalem. It is not being processed right now. You know, it's like you know, you're, you're, it's not as if our citizenship application to heaven is being processed. It is something that is in our present possession, in our pocket, in our safe at home, in the locked drawer. So think for a moment. Uh, I, I presume most of you are citizens of somewhere: Singapore, England, Australia, uh, Malaysia. What is worth your passport, your citizenship? Would you give up your Singapore, Malaysian, Australian, UK passport for a bowl of lentil stew? What a ridiculous thing, isn't it? No one would ever give up their citizenship for a bowl of stew. Even if it's a bowl of Wagyu beef, you wouldn't give it up, right? But imagine you have a heavenly citizenship, you have a heavenly passport. What would it be worth for you to give that up? What on earth, literally, would be worth you giving up your heavenly passport? Surely nothing, isn't it? It would be a thoughtless, hasty decision to give it up. In fact, in verse 25 to 28, it tells us uh, just how sad it would be because in verse 25 onwards, it tells us not only do you lose that citizenship, but you go to a place which is full of God's anger. See to it, it says in verse 25, that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them at earth, okay, this would be in Mount Sinai, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, and now, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, the created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, so our God is a consuming fire. See, what we will lose if we, if we make the mistake of godlessness like Esau is when, if we exchange the things of this earth for the heavenly inheritance you do not just lose your passport, but you actually find your way into God's judgment, into God's wrath, into the fires of hell. So rather than be godless like Esau, it says, we are to be thankful. See, if you think about it, there are so many people who are godless like Esau. I've known people to give up their heavenly inheritance because they feel really hungry now. They feel really hungry for a spouse. So they give up the heavenly inheritance for a person on this earth. They feel really, really hungry, like Esau, for money and career. So they give up the heavenly inheritance 
for that money or career. They feel really, really hungry because they have a dream that they want. And so they trade away their heavenly inheritance for their earthly dream. But in the end of the day, it's not worth it, you see. It's just not worth it. In conclusion, so I guess as we sit here as a community, as God's people, I guess the challenge for ourselves is, are we tempted to make the mistake that Esau made, to be godless like Esau, to fulfill that seemingly irresistible hunger that we feel right now, but actually at the end of the day we will regret it because we will lose that heavenly inheritance. Well, if you feel that way, if you are tempted that way, then heed the words of God today. Do not be godless like Esau. Do not make that mistake. Because there is nothing on this earth, no dream, no person, no thing, no possession that is so great that is worth your heavenly inheritance. To be with God for eternity, to be perfect, to be righteous before Him. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, truly we pray that as we have heard your word in the book of Hebrews, that we will see that we do have a genuine need to keep looking after each other, that we may run in such a way that we will heal the lame, not disable them or stumble them. We pray that we make, we make every effort to live in peace with one another as far as possible, to be holy in everything that we do, to truly try to help those who are falling short of the mark, but at the same time protecting others from the harm of any bad thinking or bad living. And not to be sexually immoral, but lastly as well, not to make the mistake of Esau, the godless mistake of exchanging uh, something which seems so desperately important today, something that we feel an irresistible need in our heart, but actually in eternity is truly trivial and minor. If we are tempted with that, dear Father, we pray that you may help us to gain insight, wisdom and self-control and discipline to continue to hold on to Jesus and to resist that temptation of exchanging our heavenly citizenship with some immediate need today. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen.